Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser, and today we welcome in Howard Bryant of ESPN. He is a writer and occasionally an on-air figure who is a prolific author, particularly dealing with sports and race. He'll talk to us about his view of the A's this upcoming season, Mike Fires and the Astros, and his latest project on Ricky Henderson. All of that next on A's Plus. Today on A's Plus, it's always a delight to welcome in Howard Bryant, my longtime friend, former A's beat writer, Howie, when were you on? You on the beat from 98, 98 to, to 01. 01. Yes. Yeah. Good years. The Giambi years. The Giambi years. The, yes. big, the big three years. That's right. Um, so you are, you've always kind of remained an A's observer from afar. This is a team that's won 97 games in back-to-back years, gone to the wild card game each time. What are your impressions of them this year? Well, I think that the first thing when I, when I think about that team, we talked about this last year. And the issue was going to be whether or not they were going to be able to perform not sneaking up on anybody. And if you didn't sneak up on people, then maybe you're going to get exposed as a, as a team that's not quite ready for prime time. And then they started out slowly and it started to look like, yeah, well, you know, that's exactly what was happening. And then they turned it on again, second half team, and they just began, and you're looking at them and you go, wait, on second thought, this team is a solid team. It's a really good team. I remember... Two years ago, the first year they won 97, Bob Melvin said to me, I don't understand it. I don't know why people think we're not good. This is going to be a really, you know, surprising team. And so I think this year, when you look at it, the challenges are always going to be different. This year's challenge is like a threefold challenge. One, you want to get away from the wild card game. That is the very first challenge. And uh, I talked to Marcus Simeon about it this morning, and he was like, He's like, the motto this year is every game counts. Every game matters. We don't want to get in that situation. Um, that's the first battle. The second battle is obviously, this is an interesting team to me because I think, you know, and you can correct me since you've been here for forever, Susan. Forever and ever. Forever and ever and ever, <laughs> that this is probably one of the more veteran ace teams with, with that, not that much turnover. Right. A young, it's a young veteran team. Exactly. Almost no turnover, though. That's I right. I think the least turnover since maybe 2014 with mm-hmm. the, you know, the Cespedes Donaldson team. That's right. So if you've got enough guys who have been in the battle, you can count on them more. You know, you can you can count on them being or expecting them to be there. They're not going to be nervous when they get to Fenway. They're not going to. There are more guys you can count on when you get to Yankee Stadium in Houston and, and the battle starts getting really tight. And then, of course, the third thing is the scandal, you know, is what is what is going to be the fallout? How is this going to play out? What's it going to look like? And and how do you how do you use whatever that uh, fallout's going to be to your advantage? Yeah. Does it? I was going to get to this much later because I still have ace questions, but we'll, we'll just dive straight into the Astros because that's all anybody well, seems no, no, to ask I about or the, care about now. But does it does the scandal affect the Astros in a negative way or maybe a positive way? Your friend and mine, Dusty Baker, is now in charge there, and I think there's no better person to kind of maybe mm-hmm. try to write a ship and get guys to band together. And does it affect the A's in a positive or negative way? Because they're obviously right smack in the middle of it too with Mike Fires. Yeah, well, let's stay on the A's because I think that that is a... a, a it's a number one question, and no matter what happens this season, I think it's one of those really interesting things that you know we've covered over the years, and everyone wants to tell you it's just another game, and you know we're not going to let distractions. Bullshit. Everything matters. Yeah. 
it all matters. It all comes together. And somehow, some way, during the course of the season, all these things are going to raise their head. Um, I, I, I liked the fact that Mike Fires is in con- seems to be in control of his narrative and that he's he doesn't look wide-eyed about it. He looks like he's, he's taken ownership of what he did and why he did what he did. And he's decided when he's going to talk about it and when he's not going to talk about it. And he hasn't done something that we... He's not using the old playbook that we've heard all the time. Well, this is just a, you know, this is a media creation. That's a me- it's not a media creation. Right. He's standing by it. He stands. He stands by it, and and is also seems to be willing to 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 deal with that in a way that is going to make him a better player. Right. I don't need protection from Major League Baseball. I'm here to play baseball. Right. You know, in other words, come with it. Yeah. I was it. talking to him about it this morning, and uh, I said, well, you know, I, I, the A's and MLB both believe there have been fairly credible threats to your safety not mm-hmm. not from other because he he had been talking uh i think about um ramifications on the field yes. um retaliation yes. mm-hmm. he says he's not worried about that but there are fans and others uh, uh involved uh you know in the in the outside world that i think have made credible threats and he said i've had death threats before it doesn't bother me like i i trust the the security and i, yeah. I you know he's yeah. like I, I worry about the safety of my family i'm not worried about myself so sure. But yeah, right. But this is, you know, he's a very, he's a key member of the A's rotation, and um, he's somebody that's going to be in the center of this storm all year. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you know, speaking of Ricky, there's always Ricky, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's there's always Ricky somewhere. (laughs) And you know, I mean, I feel like the the interesting thing about this club is. There are going to be so many tests everywhere. And I think the biggest test is the fact that they're a really good baseball team. They're a really good baseball team, and they're going up against a really good baseball team. And then they've also got another really good baseball team that's going to stand in their way as well, which yeah. is the Yankees. I mean, so you've got clubs all over the place. The Twins are going to be a better team. So the Angels are going to be a better team. And so I always look at this and I think that people look at the at the records and they say, okay, 97 wins, 97 wins, you know, come close, come close. Therefore, the initial arc is going to be upward. It's not always upward because everybody else is getting better, too. There are going to be different dynamics that take place. And I think the biggest thing with this team and I and I and I think I was talking to Connie Lansford about this um, last month and he was talking about the 89 team after getting smoked by the Dodgers in the World Series it sounded very much what what, what Marcus Simeon said today he says you know we come in day one and can't leave anything to chance and I think that's a great motivation and it's a really good mindset for a team to have you stay focused yeah what it, the A's rotation it's interesting because usually you would look at it and go well they lost three veterans off of last year's yep. staff Anderson Bailey Roark yep. um but this is a better rotation in yep. my mind. You've got Shamanaya, you know, theoretically for a full season. All of this is assuming health. Yep. Um, Frankie Montas mm-hmm. for an entire season after the 80-game suspension. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got Puck and Lazardo, yep. uh, who looked nothing except for, you know, especially for Lazardo, looked mm-hmm. absolutely like a, a potential dominating all-star, maybe level pitcher at some point yep. in his career. What is your impression? And, of course, Fires, who we've, we've yep. mentioned before. What are your impressions of the rotation? Well, I'm, I'm – 
I'm conflicted about all of it because I'm old school. And you know, you and I talked about that this morning. Who's the ace of the staff? Do you need that? And and I and I think that to me, I still believe, and I will always believe that it's just no matter what analytics you put on it, no matter how many different ways you use openers and how many other different ways you try to change it. Baseball is the same wheel, and the same wheel to me is. Friday night against the Astros, a game we got to have. Who's going on the mound and say, we're not losing tonight? You still have to have that. Somebody has got to emerge at some point during the season to, to let the teammates know, you can count on me. Right. And that's not just hyperbole. That's a real thing. I think it's also great that you've got three guys out there. Um, you know, Manaya, you know, has been great. You know, when he pitches, you look at him. Um, and I know that he had a tough one, you know, when he, you know, you put him on the mound at Yankee Stadium and put him on the mound at Fenway. But at the same time, you know, you put him on the mound against those teams in Oakland and they're not beating him. So I think that there's a, there's a, a exactly against the Red Sox. And so, you know, you've got that in your back pocket. And I think there's also something to be said in terms of these guys pushing each other and trying to stay healthy and trying to like nudge each other out for that you know, for that, that role of being the guy. And um, I, I think that, I think that even though, you know, starting pitching is managed very, very differently now, I think if you've got Montas, I think if you've got Lazaro, you think you've, you know, fires all these guys together. I think that at the end of the day, if, you know, the question for me is when we start getting down to it, and you're looking at, you're looking at, I don't know what Boston's going to do this year. If you're looking at the Yankees and Houston, you expect them to be there. You know, you expect, you know, Minnesota, they, know, they got, you know, they're, they're better as well. Um, does an ensemble cast get you over the hump? Or do you need somebody at some point this season to separate and say, I'm the guy? To you, does ace mean best pitcher or does it mean best leader? Because I think the A's might have one of each. And yeah. their, their best leader, I think, is also still a very good pitcher. I think it's probably Manaya. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as you know, you know, Joe Torre used to say this all the time when I used to cover the Yankees. Everything's going to work itself out. In other words, injuries, you just don't right. know, and it's all going to... Joe, you've got six starters. Who's going to... Everything's going to work yeah, itself true. out. And, and it does. I mean, to me, to answer the question, when I talk about ace... I'm talking about the guy who you've got the most confidence out there to get you to the seventh inning when the money's on the table. And sometimes that's not even your best pitcher. I mean, I remember in 99, the guy that you wanted on the mound more than anybody with the Yankees was Duque. He wasn't the the ace. He was the toughest. Your twin. My twin. He (laughs) He was the toughest guy, right? And so to me, I think that when you're looking at the A's, I mean, you know, you've been covering this long enough to know that there are, there are guys that in the clubhouse, they've got the numbers, but the guys don't trust them when the screws are really being put to them in, in a pressure situation. So to me, it's the guy who you know you can count on. He's not going to fall apart when it's go time. Just to, to clarify there, when Howard covered the Yankees, he did occasionally get people yelling at him, especially especially on your way to the ballpark, right? Like in a in a car or something, people yelling, Duque at you. Duque, Duque, right? Baltimore, <laughs> Baltimore 2002, walking into Camden Yards, and this little kid is chasing me, Mr. Duque, Mr. Duque, will you sign my ball, please, Mr. Duque? And I was just so pissed. I was just not in, I was not having it that day. 
and I and I just kept walking and didn't say anything. I'm like, I have nothing snappy oh, to say to you. Don't. I have nothing. I have nothing clever to say to you. I don't have anything comforting to say to you. I'm sorry, son. I'm not the one you're looking for. I just let it go. And his father came up to this heartbroken kid and he says, "Don't worry, son. They're not all like that." Oh no! Now, now this kid for the rest of his life thinks Duque is the is such a mean, nasty Every guy. It's really Orlando, you. I hate you, Duque. Oh, it's so terrible. Sorry, Duque. I didn't think about it that way. So we uh, talked a little bit about the A's needing to get off to a better start. They've uh, they've traditionally been a second half team. They were the same when you yeah. way back when you covered yeah. them. Always okay. a, that 2001 team was the extreme example. Yeah. I remember at one point Johnny Damon sort of staying in the room, going, "We're all gonna get traded," yeah. like near the trading and then all deadline. Of a and then they I turned it on. I talking to Art about that, and Art was like, this team sucks. <laughs> you won 100 games. Yeah. You won 100 games, Art. Yeah. Oh, no, this, this guy can't do this. This guy yeah. can't do that. You're just ripping the whole team, and then all of a sudden they win 30 out of 32 or something. I mean, it's just, you know, the next year's team, you know, has the 20-game winning streak. I mean, yeah. What is it about this franchise and the second half? Well, I think it's always fascinating that teams, you know, teams take on personalities even when the personnel changes. Over the course of 20 years, you've got so much turnover here, and yet some of the patterns remain the same. I mean, that's kind of fascinating. It's like, why can't the Chicago Bears develop a quarterback? I don't know. Just haven't <laughs> been able to do it. And so, I, you know, I, I don't know the reason for that, but I do, I do think that being cognizant of it is a dual effect. You know, on the one hand, you can say, yeah, we really emphasized this and it was really good for us. But if you don't get the results you want, you're like, oh, maybe we overemphasize this and we hit the, you know, we hit the gas too hard. And now we're not a second half team and it all falls apart. So I don't know. I mean, I still feel, you know, and Bob was talking about that as well, about their schedule. I mean, there's so many different variables that that can that can help you. Um, I think the biggest thing that I that I like about this team and that is um, that's a real good asset for them. And it's going to be even more interesting now because the Raiders aren't here at all. This is, they've got a home. Right. You know, even though we're talking about stadiums and everything else, you're not going to tear up the grass anymore. You know, there's no more cutouts in the, in the, uh, for the 40-yard line. And they've been a really good home team as well. So I think if you can count on being that and you can hang in there on the road, maybe you can get that first half going a little bit better. Now, we alluded to the Astros schedule. I don't want to get – I mean, I feel like that's all anybody's <laughs> been talking about all, all spring. As a national baseball writer, Which is okay. what is your view on the scandal, particularly the way it's been handled both on the Astros level and on the Major League Baseball level? Well, you know me, Susan. I mean, you know how I feel about this. I feel like everything that you're talking about in baseball, especially baseball, obviously in, in life as well, and no matter what industry you're in, but especially in this sport, knowing the history of it, it always, always, always has to be framed between owners and players. It always has to be framed in, in a labor context. And I think that the things that remain with me that just have not been satisfied, um, no matter how many times Rob Manfred goes on the air, no matter how many times he apologizes and talks about this stuff, is the fact that over the last couple of years, there's been a movement to take your replay booth and bring it really close to the dugout. That is a red flag upon red flag upon red flag. That is the very first thing. And in a CBA year, I understand his explanations about providing immunity to the players because you need to do that to get the information. But on the, at the same time, you also have huge global issues to your sport labor-wise that you don't want those negotiations to fall apart because of how you're dealing with this scandal. Well, you know, you nailed the players, therefore we're not going to work with you on this. And so 
it, it, the timing couldn't be worse in terms of this scandal, in terms of trying to, to, get a, to get a CBA done. And also remember too, what I found in, in really interesting about this was the fact too that the players are in that circular firing squad mode where you've got some guys who believe this should have never come out, should have always stayed in house. You've got other guys who were like, you know, this is what you know we needed. Then on the other hand, you've also got an opportunity for players to band together because they've been questioning the commissioner. So you've got this group of players who are already in a labor situation, in labor mode, now banding together, saying that the commissioner didn't care about the game. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting from a player standpoint because you got maybe 80% of the players that seem very upset about this scandal and a little bit about the, how it was handled and the <laughs> fact that there were no punishments. Obviously, you know, the players involved in the scandal yeah. certainly wanted full immunity. Um, and, you know, there could be some fracturing among the player group going into the next CBA. I'm sure they come to, you know, once the bottom line is how much money is everybody getting and yeah. how do you divide yeah. that up? Yeah. I'm sure yeah. they'll be on the same page with that. But it, but it is going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Um, Howard, we are going to come back and talk to you more about your new book that's out right now and mm -hmm. your project you're working on as we speak. My favorite project of my Here, life. The favorite project of your life. And we are going to come back right after this quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Backward with Howard Bryant of ESPN. Howard, you have a new book out. I've read it. It's fantastic. Full dissidents, everyone. Uh, if you want a great read about politics and race in sports and all sorts of other, you know, social aspects that go into sports. Uh, this is the book for you. I um, absolutely loved it. I'm not just saying that because I'm your friend. Um, I, it's really timely, too, obviously, given, um, you know, the world we live in today and the sport we cover. These are constant topics um, and very, very thoughtful, well-written. Um, how long have you been working on this book? I mean, your Twitter handle is Full Dissident, mm -hmm. so, and it has been for quite some time. Yeah. So is this a topic you had kind of wanted to write about, politics, sports, race for a long time? Yeah, well, actually, the book, and thank you for saying that, Susan, it, you know, I think that the book, the last book that I worked on, The Heritage, um, all about, you know, black activism and sports, that was what this book was going to be. I mean, I'm sorry, this book is what I thought that one was going to be. But that too book, many books in you. Well, well, and I think what happened was is that there was so much history in terms of the history of activism and all of these different things that I'd realized. I'm like, I don't think I can get into a book of essays without laying the, ground, the groundwork first, without the foundation. And then I think, obviously, if you look at where we are as a culture, you look at where we are as a country, you look at what's happening and in terms of an election year and everything else, it all just sort of came together. And I thought that, to me, the biggest questions were, um, I, I have a lot of fear for where we are as a country right now. I fear that everything seems to be getting away from us in terms of not just who's in the White House and who's not in the White House and who won and who lost, but just about our values. 
about what do we mean. I think it was a really nice moment. Yesterday I was on the field and you know, one of the A's uh, prospects, Dylan Thomas, came over and told me he was reading my last book. He was reading The Heritage and, and we had a nice conversation over at the batting cage. And, and he was talking about this, about this balance, about being able to, to be an athlete but also to have an opinion because we know the price that comes with having an opinion. You know, Bruce Maxwell was on this team. We were talking about Colin Kaepernick and we are talking about all these guys. And you're talking about the price that you pay simply for having an opinion. And I told him, I said, I said, I think it's really good for you to be a citizen. I think being a citizen, and I mean citizen of the world, I think that's really, really important. And don't ever forget two things. One, this is your place of employment. And no matter how you feel, remember how it all works because you don't want to be on the outside of this. That's right. So always still pay attention to that. But on the other hand, um, don't let anybody ever make you feel guilty for caring about the world. Right. That's really well well said. Uh, you're, uh, you open with Colin Kaepernick, and it's a really thoughtful chapter. Obviously, you've mostly been a baseball guy, but you followed that very closely. What are your thoughts on, on Kaepernick and kind of where he is now, the inability to get back into the game and, uh, you know, the way he's just sort of viewed overall? Yeah. Well, I think that the, that chapter, what Colin Kaepernick taught us, was really not necessarily about Kaepernick as much as it was about the world around it. Why is he so central? And what does he represent? It is interesting when we have these lightning rods in our culture that people, that they, they represent so many things. And, you know, it's what, what does he mean to us? Never mind his individual situation, but why does does he elicit such a response? What does that say about us and what does it say about where we are? And I thought one of the things that I really enjoyed about writing that chapter was this idea that the players are in front of these movements when it's really not, it's the people. It's, it's you know, you look at the teachers and all the different, you know, in these different states who are really trying to maintain, they're trying to hold on to their livelihoods. And we talk about the players, but the activism that's taking place around the country really doesn't start with them. They're actually following it. I, I thought it was important to also sort of talk about why, uh, you know, about that response that he's not in the game. He hasn't thrown a football since the since January 1st, 2017, whatever the last game of the 2016 season was. He hasn't done any of those things. And all Nike did was let him be in one 30-second commercial and people lost their minds. <laughs> and, so, and so I ask, you know, and, and obviously the Bay Area is very, very different, but nationally, you know, you ask yourself this question, why is it so important to deny him any sort of livelihood at all? What is that really saying about who we are? And, and you know, I thought this was America where you can have your opinion, I have my opinion, and we keep it moving. But that's really not what's happening here. Now, you mentioned Bruce Maxwell. Obviously, he is to date the only baseball player to take a knee during the anthem. He was very clear when he did it. He's a, from a military family. He respects the flag. He respects the military. He loves the country. He said that's why he did it. He wanted to support the NFL players, and he also wanted to make a statement about um, violence against African Americans, particularly from um, you know police forces across the country when that was the sort of the hot-button topic. Um, Bruce is out of the game now, essentially. He's been yeah, playing in Mexico, Mexico yeah. um, but he's certainly out of MLB. Uh, I, you know, some officials I've talked to in baseball have said, you know, the knee, taking the knee it was a factor for them when looking at him. But, of course, he immediately had legal troubles, yeah, had, um, had uh, pulled a gun on a delivery person, uh, eventually, you know, had a plea agreement and came out of came out of it. And um, but the A's let him go at the end of the season yeah. and he has not been able to find a big league job since. What what's your view of that? You know, Bruce very well. I know Bruce very well. I think. 
largely everything he did was well-intentioned. I think some of the aftermath was not, he did not handle probably quite as well as, as one would hope. Yeah, and I think that in his agent, the famous Dave Stewart, told me, and I'm sure he told you the same, not a single call. And he played well in Mexico, and a left-handed catcher, and you would think that he would have all some star, value, and, yeah. and an all-star. Yeah. Not a single phone call, not a single inquiry. And Dave Stewart is the kind of guy who carries a lot of respect in the game, so even out of a courtesy, you would think somebody would take Dave's call and would, and would talk about this, but that didn't happen. I think you're right. I think that there's a... Um, I, think, I, I think the sport has looked at it two ways. One... This sport certainly does not want that heat. This is not the National Basketball Association. It's not the National Football League. And, and, and that sort of activism doesn't play in this sport. No. Uh, it doesn't play, play politically with the people who play it. It certainly doesn't play politically with the people who run it. And I think that they made that decision that this is not something that they're going to entertain. But I think there was something else about Bruce as well that I think hurt him badly, and that is the reputation of the Oakland A's. I think that the, that the A's have a, an amazing reputation. Um, as a very thoughtful organization, as an organization that will bend over backwards for you. Right. And that, that if it didn't work here, where could it work, especially right. on a team that won 97 games and then won 97 games again? And if you couldn't fit into this, yeah. um, they're going to penalize him for that. And Fair they, or unfair, but right. they're penalizing him for that. And they, they supported him through, yeah. the, through, the, through the kneeling. Um, but I think the legal thing, particularly there was the video that came out where he was swearing to cops. It was not that I think that might have been although I did talk to officials from other teams who had not seen the video and didn't know about it and just said no just I'm not interested just based on the on the kneeling so I think it's it was a lot if you're going to do something like that you probably need to um, keep the rest of your life as as probably drama free as possible to be a better player I mean that's the other thing I mean you've you've got a you got a You've got to create an insulation for yourself through your play. You can't be a marginal player. You can't be a replaceable player if you're going to take, you know, LeBron James can do it. He can wear an I Can't Breathe t-shirt because he's LeBron James. But I think the one thing about this to bring it all full circle, which is my concern about this country and what I'm saying about, you know, the reason why I wrote Full Dissidents and the whole thing was my fear about this idea of respecting the flag and that I, I feel like for the entirety of my life, the, uh, the flag has been aspirational. The American flag has told us, especially when you're talking to white people, and they'll talk to you and they'll say, and black people as well, but usually when you're having a racial conversation with, you know, with the majority, you know, they'll tell you, well, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. There was always this aspirational feeling that, you know, today is better than yesterday and tomorrow is going to be better than today and all this. That's not what I feel today, and that's not the message that's being sent today. The message that's being sent today is that the flag is something to be obeyed. It's not an ideal. It's something that you do not challenge. It's something that you do not question. It's something that doesn't have to have any ideals. And that's very, very different from the America that I've grown up in. Yeah. It's such an important conversation to have, and I really feel everyone should read your book. They should read, also read The Heritage. Um, I am personally so excited about your upcoming book. You've been working for a, uh, on a book about Ricky Henderson for more than a year now, mm-hmm. um, and I can only imagine the great stories that you've heard because Ricky, like just every day following him around, you could hear a million tremendous things. But to date, what give us maybe one, one or two of your, your favorite Ricky stories that, that you've kind of picked up so far. You don't have to give us all yeah. your secrets because definitely we want people to Same buy this book. book. Yeah. But um, what, what sort of things have you come up with so far that you hadn't heard and, and really 
uh, kind of pique your interest. Well, I've actually done something that I've never, ever, ever done before in a book, and that is talk about it while I'm working on it. But I love this book so much. I love Rick. I mean, Ricky is just, he is, he is a different category, and he is, and his career arc has been so fantastic to me, and the fact that he's a grandfatherly figure around here. I was talking to Mark Connor today, and he was like, oh, Ricky's the man. Everybody loves Ricky. Ricky's, you know, everybody loves Ricky. And I'm like, that's not something you would have said in 1987, <laughs> it, you know, where he was considered the epitome of the post-strike, selfish, sour, individualistic 80s ball player, you know, the, where the money was becoming so big. But now you look at him and you look at his numbers and you look at everything he's done and, and all of a sudden you're looking at a towering, towering figure in the history of the sport. And he's never been treated that way. He's always been sort of treated as the, uh, something of a, a character, you know, a character. And he has been. There's a, there's a real satchel page, maybe, maybe I'll play forever quality to Ricky. I walked up to him last, uh, the last time I talked to him and I said, um, you know, Ricky, you never officially retired. And he said, no, I, I still think I could help a club. I said, you're 60. He looks like he could, he though. He looks like he could, and he he's believes in, he's he could. He's in better shape than, honestly, some players. Yeah. Favorite story came yesterday, actually. And so we're sitting in the dugout, and we were talking about his Hall of Fame speech. And I remember when he was going, and he was going to, you know, when he got inducted in, in 2009, that everyone was like, oh, man, we can't wait to hear this speech. It's going to be Ricky talking about Ricky, and it's going to be the most, you know, crazy, wild speech. And that really offended him. And it offended him because he was so proud of accomplishing what he accomplished, yeah. that this, he was not a, character, a caricature, this meant something to him. And so what Ricky did was Ricky enrolled in classes at Laney College. He, in, he took speech classes and he sat in a classroom full of college students working on his speech so he would get it right. And so, and he said to me that it was important. And I knew everybody was saying, what's Ricky gonna say? What's Ricky, Ricky gonna say? But I understood the difference between people showing up because they wanted to hear from me and showing up to laugh at me, and I didn't want them to laugh at me. You know, you always hear that Ricky talking about Ricky in the you know first, the third person kind mm -hmm. of thing. I've never heard him do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's just like a shtick now. It's and um, I mean, we, you're exactly right. We're talking about you know one of the top three greatest players probably. That's right of all time and he gives back like what he does here with the A's and throughout the season he loves it he would he would definitely still play if, if he could and he could walk in in the morning he's playing cards with the kids every day yeah with the call-ups yeah and like just treats them just like normal normal guys yeah. well, Sandy Alderson and I had a phenomenal conversation about this yesterday about life and story arc the arc of our lives and that that if there's one beauty to to Ricky it's that all those battles about Who's making more? Is Canseco making more than me? Is Maguire making more than me? Is Kirby Puckett making more than me? And you know, he is doesn't Jose have to. getting more Jose days getting, off exactly, more than me. Exactly right. He doesn't have to fight those battles anymore yeah. because look at those numbers. I mean, he's at the top of the mountain and he gets to relax now. He gets to enjoy the fact that you know what? At the end of the day, he Ricky gets to do something that all of us at some point in our lives say we want to do, which is to, you know, put an umbrella in your drink and say, hey. I made it. I'm the best. I'm the best. Yeah. I was the best at what I did. And, and that allows me, instead of being bitter about what I didn't get, I can just enjoy everything around me. And if there's one thing about Ricky that comes across and it is clear and it's not an exaggeration, nor is it, nor is it fake, 
he absolutely loves the game of baseball. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, he went and played in independent leagues exactly. for a couple years. That's, that's he called, other, called teams at 44 years old to see if he could get on a roster. Yeah. Loves the game. That's wonderful. Uh, Sandy's got one of my all-time favorite Ricky stories. He said he used to, he went to some reunion, mm-hmm. college reunion, and that they had the section that said hobbies, and he hobbies. put it as his hobbies, trading, trading Ricky Henderson. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Love that. Howard, when are you expecting that this book might be out? Um, it is probably going to be out, I think, in, in the end of 2021, probably Christmas 2021, Ooh. I think. So I got to get to getting on this, but um, I am heading out next week to, uh, to Tampa to go talk about the Yankee years. And um, it was very funny yesterday talking to Sandy about when the A's traded Ricky in, in December of 84. And he was saying that the, you know, the two teams that really wanted Ricky were the Dodgers and the Yankees. And the guy that he was negotiating with. And Sandy, you have to remember, Sandy had only been in the game four years when this happened. And now he's the guy negotiating to trade the best player on the A's. And he was telling me this hilarious story about how two things had happened in those negotiations. One, he had to go to the Dodgers brass and he's in a room with Al Campanis, the notorious Al Campanis. And Campanis had gout. So throughout the entire negotiation, he's got like his foot up and he's like moaning in pain. Uh, I'm like, that's a visual. And then the second was the fact that Ricky changed agents in the middle of the negotiations. And he, inst- he like fired his agent and hired MC Hammer's brother. That's so beautiful. Leroy. And so suddenly Leroy's in the middle of a negotiation. He's not an agent, he's just one of Ricky's friends. And he's like, so I was negotiating for the A's and for Ricky at the same time. I'm like, that's pretty funny, Sandy. That's wild. Man, times have changed. <coughs> Howard Bryant, delightful. You are absolutely wonderful to join us here um, for your annual visit on A's Plus. I cannot wait to talk to you again later this year or certainly next year and find out how this project is going. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, and how this project's going. And also, I think that it's going to be amazing from a Bay Area standpoint to yeah. see what the A's do this year, what happens with the Astros. And, Dusty, you've got a, you've got a lot of chapters yourself to look at this season. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thanks, Howard Bryant, for joining us on A's Plus. Thank you. Thanks again to Howard Bryant of ESPN for joining us on A's Plus. Howard can be found on Twitter at hbryant42. Our producers today were G. Allen Johnson and King Kaufman. We will be back again next week with more A's Plus. Thanks for listening. A's Plus is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Support A's Plus and all of the Chronicle's journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com pod.